My name is Erin Jensen. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode of my podcast. It's been a dream in my heart for a very long time. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a review. As an entertainment writer, I've talked to a number of celebrities, Jennifer Aniston, Brad Pitt, some that weren't married to each other, The Rock, Selena Gomez, My favorite interviews are the ones that go beyond whatever project the star is looking to promote. Conversations that get into topics that we all can relate to. Things like failures, disappointments, grief. My therapist would tell you, if he wasn't bound by HIPAA laws, that I could benefit from increasing my resiliency. I've never cried over spilled milk, but I have cried over spilled orange juice, which is why I'm in awe of people who are able to overcome what my mind views as unimaginable loss, inconceivable heartbreak, or an insurmountable challenge. If you've ever come across a remarkable story of triumph and thought to yourself, how on earth did they do that? Here's how. I'm incredibly honored to have Jack Grincolis as my first guest. 9-11 was a catastrophic event for every American, but Jack grieved on a personal level. On that earth-shattering day, he lost his wife and their unborn baby. In our 90-minute chat, which has been condensed, Jack could not have been more gracious or candid in sharing his story. I flipped on the television and watched in horror what was happening in New York, and then the scenes of the Pentagon, and I'm just dumbfounded at who is doing this, why is this happening, what the heck's going on? And then I'm thinking, Lauren is supposed to be flying back today. The United States' sense of security crumbled with the 110-story Twin Towers on September 11, 2001. Hijacked planes struck the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan, killing 2,753. Another plane taken over hit the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia, ending 184 lives. But a fourth plane didn't reach its intended target, believed to be the White House or the U.S. Capitol. Brave passengers and crew members aboard United Airlines Flight 93 fought back, and the plane crashed in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, a township about an hour and a half outside of Pittsburgh. All 40 passengers and crew aboard died, including 38-year-old Lauren Catuzzi Grancolis, who her widowed husband Jack Grancolis described as athletic, petite, at just five foot four, but quote, pound for pound, as tough as any guy I know. Lauren was a very selfless individual with a great zest for life. She was probably the best friend you could ever want to have. And I know Lauren, being the type of tough gal she was, been around a lot of testosterone in her life as a football coach's daughter, and led corporate executives at Pricewaterhouse into winning accounts. She would probably have been tapping her watch and looking at the guys saying, okay, we don't have a lot of time here, let's do this. Jack has memorialized Lauren in a book, Like a River to the Sea, which borrows its title from the lyrics of U2's One Tree Hill. Jack's book is dedicated to his and Lauren's unborn child. She was three months along at the time of her death. Dear son or daughter, I am writing this book at the advice of my therapist, Jack writes. She felt it would be helpful to share a little bit about your mom and dad and why you will always have your place in history. This story may also help others who have suffered a traumatic loss. Lauren and Jack married for 10 years, first met as students at the University of Texas at Austin in 1983. Jack and a friend were walking into a government studies class, one of those big classes held in an auditorium that could fit hundreds of students. The friend knew Lauren from high school and introduced her to Jack. I just remember looking into her eyes and seeing the most beautiful eyes I'd ever seen. I don't think I've seen blue like this before. And 
just the sparkly smile and a bubbly personality. The sparks hit instantly. It was one of those sort of wow moments. But Jack had a girlfriend and Lauren a boyfriend. About two years after they met, both were single, and Jack's on in, getting U2 fan Lauren tickets to a concert. Sounds like a great date. At least to Jack, anyway. I had a bouquet of flowers in one hand and the tickets and a bottle of wine in the other. And she had her door open at her apartment and was in the bathroom brushing her teeth. And she just kind of hollered out from the bathroom, money's on the counter, leave the ticket on the table. And when she came out of the bathroom, she saw me befuddled looking, standing there with flowers and wine and went, oh, this is a date. Oh, okay, great. And off we went and had a great time from there on out. From there on out, with Jack all the while keeping that ticket stub in his wallet. The UT graduates, now living in San Francisco, got engaged in 1990. The next year, they wed at the Golden City's Hamlin Mansion with views of the Golden Gate Bridge. It just seemed magical, and it seemed so destined and so wonderful that I don't think either one of us could have thought it would be any better. Although we had lived together prior, this was now a new commitment that in the future, hopefully, would produce a family. And that's why we moved out of San Francisco into Marin and bought a house that we have a couple extra bedrooms to maybe turn into nurseries. Jack and Lauren tried for a decade to get pregnant. They suffered a miscarriage in 1999. As Jack writes in his book, they'd, quote, pretty much resigned ourselves to raising only cats. And then a miracle happened. Since we had a miscarriage two years earlier, we were both very gun-shy about getting too excited or jinxing the fact that she might be pregnant because it was not something that was going to be easy. She had to have surgery to correct a blocked tube. The other side was a high uh, probability of eptopic, and so that could be deadly. And so we held our breath, and we made it through the first trimester. She's still pregnant. It was just a joyful, oh, my gosh, here we go. Yay, it happened. Lauren thought revealing her pregnancy while in New Jersey for her grandmother's funeral would provide her grieving family members a moment of joy. Jack would miss the announcement as he had to stay home to tend to the couple's sick cat, an orange tabby named Nicholas. Lauren left for New Jersey on September 6th, with plans of returning September 11th. That morning, Jack slept in the couple's primary bedroom, upstairs with the phone ringer off to enjoy a slumber uninterrupted by pesky telemarketers. As I was sleeping, I remember faintly hearing the phone ring downstairs twice. I almost thought I'd get up, but I just thought maybe it was those telemarketers starting up and making their calls. And they weren't right back to back. And I rolled over and went to sleep. Jack woke up at 7.03 Pacific time, The exact time United 93 crashed into a field in Shanksville, 10.03 a.m. Eastern. I looked out the window and I saw this aberration, if you will, kind of like a water drop of an image. And it's blinking as it rises up into the sky and it looked like an angel. And I was struck by that. And I thought, gosh, who do I know that just died? I'm thinking it was a little grandma paying a visit to say goodbye. And then I flipped on the television and watched in horror what was happening in New York. And then the scenes of the Pentagon. And I'm just dumbfounded at who is doing this? Why is this happening? What the heck's going on? Jack's mind went to Lauren, but her flight home would surely be among those grounded, he assumed. And I thought, that's good. Then the phone rang, and it was Lauren's sister, Vaughn. And Vaughn asked if I'd heard from Lauren, and I said, no, I thought she'd be back at your house because her flight's been grounded. And 
there was a little pregnant pause and she said she called and said she got on an earlier flight and that's when this chill went down my spine and i just thought uh oh we got a new problem here jack raced downstairs and noticed the answering machine's red blinking light in lauren's first message she relayed the details of her new flight hey i just want to let you know i'm on eight o'clock instead of the nine twenty. So I get to San Francisco at about 11, and I'll be at the ferry terminal probably a little before 12, okay? So I'll call you then. Bye. In the second, she told Jack how much she loved him and downplayed the hijacking for his sake. Honey, are you there? Jack, pick up, sweetie. Okay, well, I just wanted to tell you I love you. We're having a little problem on the plane. Um, I'm totally fine. Um... I just love you more than anything, just know that. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable and I'm okay for now. Um, just a little problem, so I'll, uh, I, I just love you. Please tell my family I love them too. Bye, honey. After I heard her message, I looked at the television. They were showing the whole crash site in Pennsylvania. And they were saying that it was a United 93 flight out of Newark. And that's when I dropped to my knees and knew that she and the baby were gone. Jack said his shock sent him into a zombie state. In the first three months, I lost 30 pounds. And I went to the doctor thinking maybe I had cancer. And he laughed at me and he said, no, you have depression. Going to a therapist to talk about it helped immensely. It was unbelievable. It opened my eyes and my ears and my brain to accept what was going on and how to deal with it. You got to have pace and you got to have balance. And that's what he said to me. And I said, okay, explain what pace I should go at. And he says, at your own pace. What about balance? He goes, well, don't go too fast and, and don't go too slow and take care of unfinished business. And because I held on to so many things of Lauren for so long in that house by myself, I knew that wasn't healthy. I knew that was making me depressed. And so I started slowly kind of praying to Lawrence and help me with this. What do you want me to do with these clothes? What do you think I should do? I got to hear you. And in many weird ways, I would hear her and follow those instructions. And it really helps. Through therapy, he said, go ahead and talk to her. That's fine. Let her guide you. You know, in a way, the year of firsts that everyone encounters from a shocking loss was helped by Lauren kind of being there to help pick me up each time the dark bombs came. And they came a lot. But you've got to hunker down and deal with them as they come in. You write in the book about how the first year is the hardest. On top of typical firsts that someone might have, April 2002 was the month your baby was due and June would have been your first Father's Day. How did you deal with all of those firsts? How did they impact you? The rest of the world doesn't realize it, but you do. And that's the private part of it all. And there's also a stage in the grief process that is called longing. And it's about six months after you lose someone, shockingly and abruptly. And then when the shock wears off, longing snakes in and it says, okay, you really miss this person so bad that you can't function and we're not going to let you. (laughs) So you have to say, hello, longing and deal with that and figure out how to manage that. Because I've talked to a lot of people prior to the book and they'd lost someone two or three months ago and tragically, and they say, how do you get through it? And I caution them. I just say, look, it gets worse before it gets better, but it does get better. And don't be afraid to seek mental counseling 
because nothing's going to seem right in your own head and it can be sorted out. How did therapy help you? The technique that I learned 15 years later that was used was called EMDR, which is where the therapist talks to you and waves their fingers across your eyes to get your eyes to follow the direction of the fingers while she's talking to you and asking you questions. And this technique is known to allow the left and right brain to connect on thoughts. And she was able to pull out that I had properly been mourning Lauren, but I had not mourned the entity I did not know. And that was the unborn child. And I was just blown away by how she could pull that out and recognize that's what was haunting me. I was thinking about the child every year, what stage they would have been at at that point in time. I would look at friends and other people's children and they go, kindergarten would have been this year and dressing up for Halloween. It's just little fantasy thoughts that were making me not healthy and making me sad. And when I first went back, I went to a gentleman and he said, I think you ought to see a specialist in PTSD. And so she diagnosed me with PTSD. And I said, I don't think so. That's a battlefield issue. And I haven't been bombed or shot at. And she says, oh, yes, you have. So I kind of thought, okay, I'll deal with that and let her do the EMDR and it worked. But I also at the same time said, you know, why is it called PTSD? It's not a disorder. It's a brain injury. It's a shock to your system. And if you can destigmatize mental health, the best way to do it is to be sensitive with the words and use the proper words. I think injury is a better term than disorder because if I knew it many, many years before that, I would have definitely run in and said, help me. But instead I didn't. I went on a very destructive path. And throughout the book, you describe your identity and its effect on you. Uh, before 9-11, you write, I had enjoyed many different identities, executive vice president, enthusiastic golfer, native Hoosier, Texas grad, adoring husband. Now I was defined by one thing. I was the guy who lost his wife on 9-11. And then later, as part of your grief, you're partying hard to, quote, show people that even though I was the guy who lost his wife on United 93, I could still have a good time. I hated to feel pitied, so I tried to make every situation light and breezy. How did that identity, trying to be that person, affect you in your drinking? I was trying to change an identity that was not changeable. I didn't want to be no fun to be around. And that involves a lot of cocktails. And when you run with Sean Penn, you meet a lot of colorful people. Um, nights out would go late. It wasn't all just partying. It was figuring out what you were really trying to be and who you were going to be because it was uncharted waters. And I didn't really know. And I didn't want to, be stigmatized with that identity. And a lot of it was the fact that I would have these dreams and they're so vivid. And many of them, Lauren was there, but she never spoke. It started to get so bad that I would do what I call bunker drunk. You're in a bunker in a war zone and the grief bombs and sad bombs and the anxiety bombs and the insecurity bombs are dropping all around you. And so you just want to cuddle up with this bottle. And in my case, it was wine. And you want to just cuddle up with that bottle so that it numbs you to sleep and you can't possibly dream. You just want to survive the night. So that's really when I realized this isn't healthy and this isn't right. And this isn't what Lauren would want. So you go through these deep 
depression areas and then you got to get back out of that dark alley and come back into the light of day and start addressing these things you address them through friends friends usually are the first ones to let you know that something's not right with you and that is probably the most important thing i will tell anyone is if you see somebody struggling don't be shy to say hey you okay or even more forcefully hey you're not okay and you might want to seek some help or talk to somebody else if you don't believe me how long did the bunker drinking go on? Oh, gosh, that probably went on for a couple of years. It was off and on. It wasn't every night, but it was when the dreams would hit me. And I'd just start going, oh, I'm going through a phase of something. And I thought, I'm going to self-medicate this away. You write, Lauren's life ended because of hate, but her final moments were defined by something much more powerful. Her phone call to me from aboard United 93 was the ultimate expression of love, and those words will live on forever. Losing Lauren pushed me to the breaking point. Love is what saved me. How did love save you? In the form of Sarah. When I met Sarah and I thought, boy, I think we could be happy together. And then when she had her cancer scare, I realized, boy, I did not want to lose her. I wanted to be with her the rest of my life. And that's when I just realized I was in love again. And it was a great thing and not something to hide from or worry about that Lauren would be upset. It was the Lauren had sent her. So be happy. And that's where I am now. I mean, love is a much better place than being angry and surly and bitter. Sarah embraced your love for Lauren. What was that like? And what did that do for you? The more I got to know Sarah, the more I realized she's a lot like Lauren. And that had the two of them met before Lauren's death, they would have been fast friends. I had no doubt. So then I started thinking, ah, there's another one of these Lauren sprinkling the fairy dust and being an angel in heaven and sending me an angel on earth. So we started dating and long after that, moved in together. And long after that, because I'm slow and I'm stubborn and I'm not that bright. I asked her if she would be interested in wearing Lauren's diamond ring because we were redoing it at the time of her death. So it was at the jewelers and I had put it in a dark safe deposit box. And I thought it needed to see the light of the day and sparkle on a beautiful woman's finger like Sarah. And she not only said yes, but she was giddy about sharing the diamonds of Lauren. Sarah's a remarkable person. We even did an interview together many years ago. A woman interviewing us said, if Lauren were to walk into the room today, what would you say to her? And Sarah, with her British body accent and sense of humor, says, do you mind sharing? And after you and Sarah wed, your identity shifts again. Referring to your enthusiastic dancing at your wedding reception, she said, he told me he felt like a huge weight had finally lifted after 18 years. He had right. always been the 9-11 guy who had never got married again. Suddenly he felt free and light and just wanted to throw himself around. How did that moment feel at your reception on the dance floor? It was wonderful. It was liberating. And it was almost as if Lauren was there having my feet float around that dance floor. She was happy for me. And I was happy that I was able to battle back and be able to be happy. And the song I chose was She Sells Sanctuary by The Cult. And if you know the song, it's a rock and roll song. But in the song, he says, your eyes keep me alive. And Ironically, Sarah has equally beautiful eyes as Lauren. So 
the sparkle in your eyes keeps me alive is true. And looking at Sarah and dancing, I don't know. I just, I went into a kind of a wild sort of zone of a Zen happiness. I'm really not that good at dancing. I even watched myself and I went, who is that guy? Not really me, but it was something. And it's a beautiful video that we, we enjoy quite a bit, actually. And it's that kind of joy that is the hope that Lauren really had for me to find again. And I could tell, again, going back to her message, she was also hoping that I would be okay. And I felt joy in that I was making her happy too. Is there anything else you want to add in addition to what we've already talked about in terms of what helped you throughout this process? It's friends. It's people who are there for you that help you get back to being the person that you were. I was an annoyingly happy person, morning person, and annoyingly so that Lauren would put the pillow over her head and say, get away. And after her death, I was a very, very sad, dark person and didn't want to get out of bed in the mornings and lost that zest. And slowly through friends and Sarah being in my life, I'm now that ridiculously annoying morning person again. I bring Sarah tea and she puts the pillow over her head and says, I need another 10 minutes. You realize when you're starting to get back on your feet and you're going the right direction, the scars will always be there. And that's what you need to protect. Keep that scar where it is. Don't ignore it and try to make the best of what you can. You write, I've endured a pair of horrific tragedies, but still have a resilient spirit and zest for life. How have you maintained that resilient spirit and zest for life? Knowing how precious life is, how quickly it can change in a moment, as it did for Lauren and many other people on September 11th. I would be doing her dishonor if I didn't continue on having the energy and excitement for every day as I did when she was alive. I remember early on hearing her say, hey, they got me, but don't let them get you too. And that was very motivating for me. It was like, okay, I got to do this for you. I got to stand up and be there for you. And not let you down. The last thing I want to do is let you down and be a loser. So I fought hard not to let them get me too. Was there anything else that you wanted to chat about today or were hoping that you would be asked? My hope is that people will take from this some inspiration, maybe live their lives in a better way, maybe put down some of their hatreds for a moment and realize that the word itself is probably something that should be removed from the English language. It'll never get old supporting Flight 93 Memorial. I hope people continue to do it. And I hope they continue to go there and visit it. It's a special site. And I'm glad that people appreciate the folks that were on that flight. And my heart goes out personally to every other family member that has lost someone on that horrific day. I really feel for those people. And I hope they understand that. And I hope this book will help them too, because there is a shared journey here amongst them and us. Fate dealt Jack another breath-stealing blow in June of 2020. While cleaning up from a backyard dinner with friends, Jack fell into his burning fire pit. He nearly died in the ambulance ride. Suffering third and fourth degree burns across 18% of his body, he spent 33 days in the ICU burn unit. Due to an infection, he spent two days on life support. A former boss advised you, it's hard to find the right words, but what I've learned through sailing is that the only way through a storm is to meet it head on. Have you made it through the storm? I'm going to say that I've made it through the biggest storms. And I'm going to say that there's probably rough water somewhere down the road, as there always is, whether it's a, a physical condition. You just can't predict what's going to happen. But I feel 
a lot stronger to face anything that comes my way. Hopefully we have some water that's going to be clear and steady and bright and easy to continue down. But life for everybody has twists and turns and some things are unexpected and you just got to be able to prepare yourself for that and try to accept it and deal with it. And with that, listeners, I want to let you know how much I appreciate you tuning in. I want to thank Jack for speaking so honestly about his experience. And I leave you with the hopeful words that close his book. We all suffer loss. We all endure heartbreak. It's how you respond to these cataclysms that define you. Sometimes the most beautiful things grow out of the hardest moments. I'm reminded of this every time I glance into the backyard. The fire pit is no more, having been turned into a planter box where the flowers bloom again and again.